Hey y'all, welcome to Detoxicity, a show about progressive masculinity. I'm the show's host and producer, Mike Joseph. If you enjoy what you're hearing on the show, I kindly ask that you smash the subscribe button on whichever platform you're using to listen. Also, please don't hesitate to rate, comment, and recommend. If you have someone in your life that could get something out of the conversations we're having here, tell them about the show. Also, feel free to follow me on social media. I'm Detox Pod Guy on Instagram and Tiz Mike Joseph, that is T I S Mike Joseph on Twitter. You can even email me, detoxpod at gmail.com. Don't hesitate to reach out if you know someone who might be interested in being interviewed on the show or if you have any other ideas or constructive criticism. Most importantly, I thank you very much for listening. Stay well. Mike Bankhead is a musician based in Dayton, Ohio. During our interview, Mike talks about his close-knit local community and why the Midwest appeals to him. We discuss the cultural stigma that still exists around mental health in the black community, and Mike shares a couple of interesting stories about his experiences with law enforcement. Our discussion also covers faith in theology, perfectionism, and the awkwardness that often comes with being in environments in which you might be considered an outlier. I realize I sound like a broken record when I talk about how much I enjoy these conversations, but this was a really fun one. Let's hear what happens when two mics collide. My name is Mike Bankhead. I am in my early 40s. I am a musician. That's what I like to tell people first. Uh, I play bass. I compose on piano. That doesn't pay the bills, though. Really hard to pay the bills making music. So I, mm-hmm. at, this point, at this point, I still have a corporate job because we like having a place to live and insurance and food to eat. But my goal is I would like to have someone give me a paycheck for writing songs someday. And I'm working toward that. I try to approach music as a business as professionally as possible. So I, one of the few musicians, the few indie musicians who tries to do all the businessy stuff, get my T's crossed, I's dotted, I've got my own LLC. I pay taxes to the state of Ohio when I make sales because you got to pay sales tax if you're a business that sells stuff. That's right. I tell the IRS every year that I'm trying to make money. Kings I don't make any. Still, still not in the black yet. But telling the IRS that I'm trying allows me to do things like anything that's music related. I can deduct that from my taxes and lower my burden to the government, which is kind of a nice perk of trying to make a living making music. Sure. Was music always something that was kind of in the cards for you? Was Little Mike like, yo, I want to grow up and be a musician? No, no. Little Mike was not. You know what's funny is my family actually, they still called me that until my dad died because... Are you a junior? I am not. I'm a the second because my parents, ah. my parents hate junior. So they literally put a Roman numeral two on my birth certificate. But I am named after my father and I was little Mike my entire life, even after I got to be taller than him. That's, that's a little weird. A little, little strange. Right? <laughs> um, also a little strange is when you go to your father's funeral, but it's like also your name really oh, weird that has never occurred to me that really that's weird. that's a trick yeah my wife i think had a harder time with it than me she was like right because she married me and not my dad right. but she's like that was just really strange yeah it's kind of you look at the program and and it's uh no nah, I, mean, yeah. I mean yeah no if you, if you think through it in detail <laughs> no thank you 
Yeah. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Yeah, sheesh. So what what brought you to music? What was the deciding factor in saying, hey, I think I actually want to do this? Well, first it was the love, which I think I had since I was a teenager. I feel like most people in our generation, there's a time, sometime between your 12 and 18, where music is the most important thing in your life, right? That those dark teenage years where you don't know who you are, and you're still figuring things out, and there's certain music that speaks to you, regardless of genre, because everybody finds something in some genre I find at that age. That's, yes. that's their thing. And it's the most important thing. So I never really let that love of listening, listening closely and, and nerdily examining music go. I didn't start learning even how to play an instrument until I was around 20. Oh, wow. I, yeah, I, we're late in life. If there are young people listening to your podcast and they want to do music, the younger you start, the better. And it doesn't even matter what instrument you learn. The music is music, right? We're all playing in the Western canon. We're all playing with the same 12 notes. That's right. Regardless of your genre and regardless of your instrument. And the earliest that you can get a base on how it works and music theory and just how to think about music, the better you'll be going forward. And that doesn't matter if you decide to change to a different genre or change to a different instrument. It's all usable. And I really wish I'd gotten an earlier start because I would be a better musician today if I had. But yeah, I was in my late 30s before I decided that I really wanted to actually record my art and try to sell it. And then I figured, well, if you're going to sell it, I should probably find the legal way to do that. Because, my guess, you know, when you look like us, you do something the least bit illegal. That's, that's not that's yes. bueno, as they yes. say. Yes, yes, you are correct. So I try to do it the right way. I actually have a vendor's license from a music business because I sell things. Not all musicians probably go to those lengths and maybe they don't all have the same worries that I do. Sure. They don't feel like they have to, but I, for me, it was like, if I'm going to do this, let's do it right. Right. So coming into deciding that you want to be a professional musician in, in your late thirties, some people might say, is that like a midlife crisis kind of thing? Or, or is it, it's the, the dad who's hit 35 or 40 or 45 and is like, oh crap, the clock is ticking. I, I want to do some stuff. Was that in the back of your head or were you just like, look, man, I'm going to pull this trigger? That's a really good question. I thought about it a little bit, but really once... I got to the point where I felt that my art was good enough. And when you're an artist, we are always our own worst critic. Mm -hmm. But once I got to the point where I thought this is good enough, I don't know how to execute the recording of it to make it appealing to others. But I found people to help me do that, right? Then I decided if I was 16 and I heard this song in the music store back when we had those, right? You go to the music store. So you go to like the listening station and they'd be playing music, you know, they'd be playing records on the PA and you hear something, you're like, ooh, I'm going to have to go to the listening station and put that CD on and listen to it, right? Yeah. That's kind of one of my criteria. If I write something, I say, would teenage me dig this? And if the answer is yes, then it's good enough. That doesn't mean that what I write is popular. It just means that there's somebody out there that would like it, right? There's a niche audience that would dig what I do and the business side is find those people and sell to those people and then don't worry about the rest. And with enough work, 
it is possible to make a sustainable music business doing that. Not possible to get rich, but that's not my goal. Right. There are a lot of people who are in music for that reason, and I think if you're in for that reason, you won't do it very long. I make music because I have to because I'm depressed and anxious enough as it is, and that's just one little thing that helps keep me a little closer to sane. I mean, not really, but like I would, I would do it anyway. I write for me. I have to. But if I write something that I think is good enough and universal enough, I'm going to try to sell it to somebody. I don't I mean, necessarily it, think there's anything wrong with that. Nothing at all. I, I think the reason music resonates with so many people is because people find common emotions so often in stuff that, that people write, whether it's a note or a riff or a lyric, like there's something identifiable that, you know, the light bulb kind of pops on and are like, oh, I feel this too. And that's kind of always been my draw to music, even when I didn't really understand what that connection was. It's always been like, oh, this is something that I feel. This provokes some kind of emotion. Yeah. So when you're playing, and you mentioned being like your own worst critic, how hard is it to separate yourself and not just be like, this sucks, this sucks, or the opposite, the complete opposite, and be like, man, my shit is dope. Like, everything is dope. Never that second one. It's hard, and I would never have ventured to a studio the first time until someone whose opinion outside of me that I trusted confirmed that my work was good enough. And who was that person for you? Oh, I'm, I'm going to credit him. I credit him every time I do an interview, but, and he's probably sick of it. He's a professional uh, engineer named Patrick Himes. So just a brief backstory. He's from our community. He's from Dayton, Ohio. And when we were young... He started learning how to do engineering, started making records with local bands. And then he went off to Nashville to work in the industry, as you do if you want to be a big dog, right, and roll with the heavy hitters. And he worked in Nashville for a while, really, really perfected his craft, and eventually he ended up coming home. And, you know, here in Ohio, especially since Dayton's not really an industry town, you really can't charge as much per hour to run a studio here as you would charge in Nashville with a bunch of industry people. But I think he likes being here better. His dance car is always full. He knows most of the people in our small music community. Sure. Uh, we all know his work. Some of us have known him again for 20 years. But uh, when he first came home, I went to see him play a gig, and I mentioned I've been writing. And he's like, yeah, send me some stuff. And I sent him a few songs that I had not discarded. I used to throw away a lot of this stuff, oh. um, which I've learned. Now, don't throw it away. Just put it to the side somewhere and repurpose it. Yes. Um, but, you know, that's the insecurity of the past, right? Now, I write something that's garbage. I don't throw it away. I just put it somewhere. So maybe I can take a piece of that and reuse it. Keep working on it or do something with it. it, yeah. Um, but I used to throw away a lot of stuff, but I had enough stuff laying around that I thought I hadn't thrown away yet. And I sent it to him, and he's like, yeah, this is good. We should make a record. And had he not come back home, had I not had that person that I trusted, I might never have made the first record. Which, when I look back on it, I had no idea what I was doing in the studio. I'm very proud of it, but I, every time I go back and do more music, it's better. Which I think it should be. Yeah, that's anything, the goal. Anything you do work-wise, the more you do it, the better you're going to get at it. But yeah, I, I was a little ambitious. I put 13 tracks on that first one. I, You know, I grew up on on CDs that were 45 minutes to an hour long and. And when I was a kid, you listened to them front to back and just yeah, sure. thing. And and I wanted that experience. 
again, I'm trying to please teenage me. So I made a record that I would have liked as a teenager. So my first one, I feel like young people might find it ponderous and a little long as far as the runtime, but I had a story to tell and I made the record I wanted to make. And again, someone whose expertise and opinion I trust told me it was good enough. And I feel like if I brought him something that wasn't good enough, he would say, go work on this. And we're not going to record it. Yeah. So that's, I mean, it's still difficult. There, there are things I write still. Very rarely do I write something and like it right when I'm done. Um, okay. I am notoriously editing, editing lyrics, editing music, trying to find a better way to express something, trying to find a unique way to express something. Do I have to use that chord? Everybody uses that chord after this other chord. Let's. Is there a way that I can do this? Like, I don't want to bore myself or the audience, and I'm forever tinkering. Yeah. I, I like the idea of being critical about your own work. There's a fine line, I think, with, with a lot of creative people. There, there's a level of being critical where you want to perfect something and then go, hey, well, let me put this out. And then there's a level of critical where it's like, I'm just going to keep working on this and it's never, ever, ever going to be finished, <laughs> quote unquote, good enough. Yeah, I've, I struggle with that sometimes. But one of the nice things about the modern connected age we live in is we have access to talented people whose work we respect that we didn't have access to before. And there's a songwriter who I like named Dan Wilson. He's from Minnesota and everybody has heard his songs, even if you have no idea who he is. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, you have. Yes, you have. Because these days, I mean, he has a band, but these days he spends most of his time writing for pop stars, right? But uh, on his Twitter feed, he dispenses free songwriting advice and it's brief and it's useful. And he, oh, he says something about when, how do you know when it's done, when you can't take anything else out of it. So it's like the opposite of the way most people think. A lot of people just want to pile more stuff on. Right. right. But how much can you streamline your idea? How much can you remove and still have it be coherent and make sense? You take something out, it no longer makes sense. Well, then that should have been there and you're probably done. Right. That's one of the things I try to remember to not go too crazy on on the editing. And it's, I, you talked earlier about how music is kind of your way out of sometimes feeling depressed and anxious. Has that always been a part of your life? And has music always been kind of the way out of that? Yes. I didn't get an actual diagnosis on mental health until I was in my 30s. But now that I know, when I look back at things in the past with what I know now, sure. that question is yes. So I'll give you a super recent actual yesterday example. Oh, wow. Yeah, the last couple of weeks, as the kids say, to keep it 100. We're in our 40s, Mike. We don't have to do this. Okay. I'm All right. Uh, <laughs> The last couple of weeks have been very difficult, just really struggling, no motivation. I used to have panic attacks. They kind of went away for a while. They're back. I haven't even opened my corporate work computer in two weeks, which makes me really kind of worried for this coming week because I'm determined to do it tomorrow. And I'm like, man, I hope my boss has decided to keep me employed. But just the last two weeks have been very bad, depression and anxiety-wise, just really bad. And uh, yesterday, there was a community music event uh, called Porch Fest. And in New York, I don't know if you have such a thing because your city is huge. We, and in, 
different neighborhoods in New York and Brooklyn particularly have Porch Fest-like activities. And when I lived in Boston, uh, Porch Fest was also a thing. Okay. For, for folks who are listening that might not know what that is, in the city or community, they take a neighborhood and there's a commission that sponsors it and everything. And the residents of this neighborhood offer their porches to local musicians and it's a free con- basically it's a free concert for everybody in town that can drive to the neighborhood park and walk around the musicians only get paid in tips so there's no admission uh, it's fantastic to attend as a guest they keep it diverse they are fast yesterday in dayton ohio which is not a huge town by the way but we had a hip-hop and country and a salsa band and indie rock and rockabilly and blues and like and a celtic band or two and like insane diversity of product and that's what you want you want people from all walks of life to come to the neighborhood and have a good time so uh yesterday was the first time that i had been invited to play i've attended in the past and loved it but this is the first time i got a chance to play so also the thing about our community i should clarify is since our town is not big the musician community is small and everybody pretty much knows each other a lot of people are in three or four or five bands in fact for my full band performance i did i stole the drummer from another band called Sadbox. Not stole, I borrowed him. So I'm, we're, I'm getting ready to leave to go load into my set, and I find out that the drummer I've stolen, his regular band Sadbox, their bass player, um, is self-quarantining because he came into contact with the virus. Mm. He doesn't have it. He's just doing the smart thing and staying away from people. So this band is down a bass player, and I happen to play bass. So I'm like, I love your band. I love your songs. Mind if I, you know, jump in there? No, this is like two hours before they're supposed to play the show. And they're all like, yeah, sure. So I had like a 15-minute crash course on the chords. Good Lord. Like, right, like, yeah, like 15 minutes, run, quick run through right before we played. And I know the songs from listening to them in the car and listening at home. But knowing from listening is not the same as trying to learn how to play them. Sure. That's a, not, that's a totally separate way that you listen. But everyone was really laid back. And they were not too concerned about me messing up their music and it was such a freeing experience i didn't write these songs i just liked them and i like all these guys they were friendly and that was probably the happiest 45 minutes i've had and i don't even know how long wasn't even my set i showed up learned a bunch of stuff and jumped in and just played music for the art of it and felt helpful. Even if it was 45 minutes, I did somebody a solid and it felt good to help. And then looking out and watching people from the community watch by and stop and take pictures and see the, the smiles on the audience's faces. And that's like, that's why you do music right there. Mm-hmm. And this wasn't even my music. <laughs> so, so, I mean, I'm, I'm basically a listener just like everybody else because I like this band. I just happen to be listening while trying to give them some bottom end. And that was great. And I'm Still a little bit living off of those endorphins from yesterday. It, that made me forget just a little bit about how bad the last two weeks have been. Like it, I, it's hard to explain how I'm trying to think of a better word than good. Satisfying that was. I just got to be. A, I'm a songwriter. I should be able to do better. You know, you can't always have all the words all the time. We'll go with satisfying for now. Satisfying works. Yes. Probably better. Okay. Um, We'll go with gratifying. Yeah, let's go with gratifying. All right. So in terms of the not feeling great 
and you officially getting a diagnosis in your 30s. It was the same for me. I got diagnosed when I was 31. And what's interesting is that we're about the same age. So I'm wondering if this is like a universal Black people thing where you are either subtly or directly discouraged internally and externally from finding out why you're feeling the way you are? I think we're discouraged in the culture from even talking about the way that we feel. Sure. Let alone trying to get help for it. And I say this based on my childhood and adolescent experiences with my family. I would never have told my parents this, I mean, I can tell my mom this stuff now, and my poor mom, she's very sad when I tell her these things because she's like, well, how did I not notice back then? And it's like, well, she's a product of her upbringing as well, right? right? So, yeah, I, I think that's just part of the culture. I don't know how to fix that. And it's really funny because when I first started getting help, I thought I was dying of a heart attack, and it turned out to be a panic attack. And then when it's your first one, you can't tell the difference. I did not know this at the time. I know this now. But after all that, my wife's like, yeah, I knew you were depressed and we were dating. And I'm like, that might have been useful. Right. Could you have told a brother? Like, you know. (laughs) I mean, maybe if you had said something. Now, I can be stubborn on occasion, so I might not have. I might have blown it off. But I feel like. I mean, before we got married, even we had enough of a communicative relationship where if she would have said, yeah, I really think you need to get help. I would like to think I would have listened. would like to think it didn't take my body, like having a visceral physical reaction before I would have done something about it. Seriously. But once the panic attack started, there was no longer any, I mean, the proof is in how your body just doesn't, can't handle life anymore. It's just or what you're doing in life it just stops being able to deal with it and that is what made me actually look into it and get treatment but yeah when i look back on things in the past i feel like i've probably been messed up so long but i don't know what normal is i don't even know what normal is supposed to be how would i know what normal is this is all i know i don't know that there is normal at all. It it takes a lot to realize, particularly, again, for people in our age range and older, because I think that the stigma is even larger when you go up in age. So for people our age, and then for Black and Brown people, particularly those who did not grow up with any serious financial means, I think that there is this stigma. One of the reasons I do this podcast is to kind of erase that stigma not being taught to express feelings and talk about your feelings and taught to repress everything down, which then manifests itself in things like panic attacks. And then a lot of people, I think, internalize and internalize and repress and stuff that shit down until they explode. And sometimes when you explode, like, you can't come back from that. So, yeah. I don't like talking about it. I do because we're supposed to. Talking about uncomfortable stuff, as you said, is kind of the point of your podcast. But why do you think I write songs? You know, like stuff that I won't say to somebody is totally in my lyrics. Right. If you know how to, if you know how to look. Right. And I, I would have to imagine that's why a lot of people write song lyrics or write poetry or, or draw or paint or whatever. Creative expression is a great way to get those feelings that you can't quite put a name on out into the open. One thing that's also kind of cool to understand uh, based on what you're saying is that it's not like you get help and, oh, everything's great now. 
it's a work in progress. Yeah, and I think that's mostly difficult to understand for religious folk. I'm religious. But mental health is a medical issue. And there are people who will say, oh, just pray more and have faith, and that'll fix it. And I'm like, well, let's say that you have lupus or fibromyalgia. Are prayer and faith going to fix those things? No. You need medical care from a professional to deal with the problem. Prayer and faith might give you the push and the resolve to push yourself through it, but it won't fix the problem. Mental stuff's no different. And it took me a while to learn about this and recognize it, but I require assistance to fix the problem. And yeah, faith might help me like hang in there, but you can't pray away medical problems. Right. People use faith differently. And it's interesting. This is a topic I I have not talked about very much because I'm still kind of working. I mean, I'm working through a lot of journeys, but my journey with regards to faith and religion is still very much like this, where I do think it's important to have a spiritual center and it's important to, to have faith. A lot of organized religion bugs me, but also the idea that a problem can be solved or that you can make effective change on something just based on prayer. I feel like prayers should be kind of like a call to action as opposed to a standalone solution. So I'm kind of curious where you stand on all that stuff. This is not a theological podcast, but I agree with exactly what you just said. Praying for something and then doing nothing to help make that happen is not really useful. And I'm assuming you have listeners from all different faiths, and you probably have listeners that are atheists. But for the atheists, suspend disbelief for just a few minutes and imagine that there is a God just for this. Indulge me very briefly. And and while you're suspending this belief, believe that the deity has the power to help human beings. If you ask for help and then don't do anything to help yourself, why would that person be motivated to give you any assistance? I mean, I'm not a parent, but I feel like it's probably similar to parents. The kid says, hey, mommy, daddy, help me with my homework. And if you don't start your homework, why are they going to be motivated to show that you're interested in solving the problem and then the help will come? End of theological portion of the podcast. <laughs> I actually don't want to alienate your listeners. I have no, to say about no, this. No, uh, no. I mean, I, I get the, the metaphor. There's a difference between help me with my homework and do my homework for me. Yes, that's actually a better way to say it. Yes. And there are people that pray and they're asking it to get taken care of for them. And if you believe that's how it works, okay. I don't believe that's how it works. Right. I respect that. I totally respect that. Now, are you from Ohio originally? Yeah. Well, if you want to be super specific, I was born in West Virginia, but we only lived there like three months, so I don't remember any of it, which is why I don't have that accent. But I've lived in Ohio my entire life, except for one year. I worked for a company uh, in my youth, and they sent me to live and work in El Paso. Okay. Way in West Texas. Um, 
it was a very bad year of my life, but it was a learning and character building experience. My Spanish got better. Okay. Pretty much everybody out there speaks Spanish. Right. But I learned I'm not cut out to live in the desert. Just things that I take for granted here. I'm going to try to make sure my community in Dayton listens to this podcast. So I'm going to talk to them. And if you have kids or no kids, this stuff, stuff that you don't even notice in your day-to-day life, you miss when you live in the desert. For instance, in our highways, which, you know, this part of the country, there's not a lot of buildings clustered together outside the city. So we have highways and there's lots of vegetation everywhere along the highways. Even in the middle of the highway, there's green grass and trees. There's nothing green in West Texas except for irrigated golf courses. Everything is brown. So like, even like on the high, I like when I would come home to visit, I would just be like, oh, it's so green in the median of the highway. No one's looking at that ever. You take it, you don't even notice that there's grass there. But when you go to a place with no grass, it makes you miss little things about home that you didn't even know you missed. And kids that grew up here, so many of them want to just get out because they don't want to live in the small town Midwest. And the more that I've traveled, because I used to travel a lot for my corporate job internationally, and also that year in Texas, those things taught me that this part of the country is not a terrible place to live. Now, there are people that live in El Paso that love it, and I get it. You like what you're used to, right? I grew up with winter. They don't have winter. Now, when it gets to like 50, people think it's cold outside, and people are still wearing jeans in 85-degree weather. And I'm like, what's what's wrong with you people out here? Um, Both of those things are wrong. <laughs> exactly wrong. There's a mountain range north of town, actual mountains. I mean, they're not like the Rockies, but they're bigger than anything we got. I saw snow on them exactly one morning the entire year I was there, and it was melted by like 10 in the morning. Wow. Like they got it, even everything, the mountain was brown. There was, I saw cactus and I actually kicked a tumbleweed. I didn't know that tumbleweeds are basically just like a convention of thorns. Like it's where thorns go to have a party and they just run around. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I'd only seen them in cartoons, right? So right. I, did, I was like, oh, this did, I'm going to go. No, don't kick tumbleweeds, people. I saw Roadrunners. Like they, a- actual? Actual Roadrunners. They don't look like in the cartoon, and they don't make the beep beep noise. They do run, though. And I'm like, you got wings. I don't know why you're trying to run. That's like, sad. if I had wings, I don't think I'd be running. <laughs> but You're, like, giving me, like, uh, I'm having a, a wow moment right now. Because I'm like, if I knew how to fly, why would I run? In the spring out there, they get these windstorms. And I, I built an apartment on the second floor because I was afraid of rattlesnakes. I didn't see any. I was there for a year, I didn't see any, but they have them. But they get these windstorms, and I'd come home from work, and there'd be like a pile of sand under my front door because the seal wasn't very good. And I'd have to like, second floor, that's how much sand desert sand blows in the air and they have these windstorms like wow yeah i mean these are the very mundane life experiences right but, but like if you're not accustomed to remember them. yeah i mean right. it's, it's a different style of life than just the people were nice but different than midwest nice i was not comfortable living there and when they fired me i could not have moved home faster <laughs> i didn't even think about trying to find another job and staying out there i was like get like no nah, i'm gone <laughs> i'm gone yeah, the desert doesn't sound very attractive to me. No, I mean, if you like your life with no rain or precipitation, except for once every few months, then it is for you. Mexican food was great because I lived like a mile or two from Mexico, Mexico. Like I was very- Actual Mexico? Right. 
and El Paso is like 80, 75, 80% Hispanic. Lots of second generation, first and second generation Americans there. Everybody's bilingual, not everybody. Like a lot of the folks at the army base aren't because they're not necessarily from there, right? They're right. from all over the country. But like like kids all speak like Spanish at home and English in school. So they, they speak this weird Spanglish mix, which I found to be hilarious. And I adopted some of it, which makes my Spanish speaking friends laugh at me. <laughs> uh, if you're going to speak more and more language, you got to play with it sometimes, right? Yeah. Um, I miss having easy access to tamales. There was a tamaleria like down the street from my apartment that sold like a dozen for $7. And we don't have tamalerias in Ohio. You got to like know some Mexican folks if you want tamales. And there's so much work. It, you know, it's kind of hard to convince somebody to make you some. <laughs> so you have to make some really good Mexican friends. I have them, but I didn't you know. I don't want to be like, hey, can you make me a dozen tamales? Not nice. <laughs> I know how much it, I know how much work it is to, to roll those up and then steam them. It takes a long time. So I do miss having a restaurant around that just had them all the time. Oh, man. So, okay, there are a couple of good things about living in El Paso, but Ohio is, is the place for you. It's the, I would just say the Midwest in general. I've been to a lot of places where I say, you know what, I could probably live here. Um, okay. We set the expense aside. Ohio is very easy to afford to live in. Like the, I, the cost of living here is low. So, Yeah, that's, that's my understanding. Now, what is the, the racial makeup of, of Dayton? That's a really good question. I feel like it's probably 35 to 40% Black, but they all live in the same part of town, like in okay. American cities. Not all, but Dayton is very segregated, like most Northern American cities, and there's historical reasons for that. There's a lot of Latinos here. Okay. A lot of Hispanos. And when I was young, there wasn't too many other different looking folks, but as I've gotten older, uh, I've met, met some Russians and met some Chinese folks. There's a couple of really good Vietnamese restaurants, which means there are, in fact, I used to work with the Vietnamese gentlemen. So we're not New York diverse, but there are a couple universities here and that helps. We're a lot more diverse than I think it was when I was young. Sure. And, and I mean, diversities are great. Not only is, do you get fantastic food with the diversity, you get different worldview and different life experiences and different languages. And I'm a language nerd might be part of why I like music because, you know, the ears and listening are involved. And I mean, I don't speak too many of them, but if I had the time and the ability, I would learn as many as I could just because I think it's fascinating the way that humans express themselves through, through language, like the language you learn as a child influences your, like literally how you think. Yeah, absolutely. We all feel the same things as human beings, but we express those things in completely different ways, sometimes based solely on the language that the language tools we have to express those things. And that stuff is fascinating to me. I agree with like, you there. Small example, really small one. In French and Spanish, the words for to be able to do something and power are the same word. Doesn't that make all the sense in the world? It does. Right? It does. Yeah. So if you grew up speaking those languages because of the way your language works, you forever have those two concepts linked in your head. Right. Because they're literally the same word. Same thing. Right. Yep. Yep. Exactly. For us, and, for us they're not. We can right. see it. Like you, you explain it to somebody. Like I explained it to you just now. You like, can make the connection. Yeah. But it's not the same as that's literally how your language functions. So that's right. how your brain functions when those concepts come to you. And I, you can draw a line to how that affects the way that you think about those concepts because it, you know yep. 
conceptualizing them is is completely different just based on on the way the language works yep does so from a professional standpoint as a musician now you make music that isn't necessarily like you're not making hip-hop or or or, you know soul music i don't have that i don't have that skill set right i actually Uh, would love to make a soul record (laughs) but it's funny because when I think of Dayton, I think of all those funk bands that came out in the late 70s or the As early you 80s. should. Yes. <laughs> We're proud of those guys. But it, what is your experience like as, as a Black man in the different musical circles? So I'm an indie rock guy. That's the scene I run in, usually. I would like to actually try to get to more all kinds of shows. But when I was young and first starting to go to shows, I was pretty much the only person that looked like me at any of the shows. What's nice is that the community here is not racist. I mean, if they are, they're keeping it very well hidden. But I felt accepted from the first shows I went to. And in fact, I can still remember the first local band I saw. And the reason that I ever saw them a second time is they were nice to me. Had they been jerks, I might never have seen another local show again and might never have decided to make music or be involved in the community. Still today, often, I am the only person that looks like me at a show. Not always, but the overwhelming majority of the time. I feel like the community is still supportive. It does feel a little strange, though, especially considering rock and roll is our music. Yes, it is. And... There are people that would try to argue about that, but those people are wrong. <laughs> yes, they are. Now, the, the nice thing is, is the musicians in our town, like the really accomplished and good ones and the nice ones, they all know that it's black music and they're cool with it. I mean, some of the rock guys, some of the musicians in our community listen to more soul music than I do. Like I, can, I think of a gentleman who's in an Americana band and he's always listening to Aretha. And like, I've listened to like two Aretha records, not nearly as much as I should. Right. Yeah. But this is a guy that doesn't even do the same genre and you're like, he's respecting the roots. Right. So I would like to make a soul record. I I haven't listened to enough of that music, especially in my formative years, that time in my teens when I really got into music. I haven't listened to enough to know how to go about it. What were you listening to in your teens? So the pop station would play the top 40, which when I was uh, first starting to listen to my own music. The Doggy Style record was the number one record in the country. So What's My Name, My Snoop was on like their top music countdown literally every night. But like Smells Like Teen Spirit, we played like right after it. So basically, your top 40 is what I was listening to. Any Like all the gangster rap, all the R&B flavored pop at the time, and all the what we look back and call alt rock now. I listened to all of that. But when I first started spending money on music, it was the rock and roll that really drew me in. So Nirvana, Pumpkins, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Sundable Pilots. Insert name of 90s band. I probably have every record they've ever made. Not to say I didn't. I mean, like there was a time when I knew all the lyrics <laughs> to all the Snoop songs. Sure. But who did it? back then they were on the yeah radio. That, it was the ubiquitous they were on yeah. the radio all the time yeah and like there were videos back when mtv used to play those play videos, right. like the snoop and dre videos were like funny in addition to like the groove and the music like they were actually funny videos. they were clever yeah yeah i had mtv for the first time around the same era like 93 94 and it was yeah uh, stone temple pilots and smashing pumpkins and rem 
and Snoop video here and there and a Dre video and like a orangey video and then a Boys to Men video. I'm just curious like where your musical vocabulary kind of came from. And obviously if you grow up listening to a lot of 90s, a lot of a particular kind of music that's going to inform the music that you make later in life. Yeah, it does. I lean myself more towards heavy power pop influences because I love harmonies. And so when I when I tell people, like they say, give me three bands you sound like, I say Fountains of Wayne Superdrag. Gotta Be Voices, I mean, you can't be from Dayton and do indie rock and not have those guys cast a shadow over everything that comes out of this town, right? Like they put out three albums last year and I think they just dropped their second one this year. Like they're an unstoppable force of indie. And then Fountains of Wayne, I love the songwriting and, you know, as a bass player, big fan of Adam Schlesinger. Like may everything he, he, may he rest gold. in peace. Yes. Yeah, it's very sad that he died prematurely, which a lot of people have because of the yes, virus. Because of COVID, yeah. But I, huge influence on my work, even when you can't hear it. And then it's funny, I don't have the skill set to write a bio, so I hired a guy to do that for me. That's what you do. Hire experts to do things for you <laughs> when you can't do it yourself. There's no shame in that, right? Hire professionals. He listens to my music and he told me when we had an interview that, um, so you sound like Husker Du. And I thought that was hilarious because I've only listened to like two Husker Du songs, but I love Super Drag and the guys in Super Drag all love Husker Du. So like right. I absorbed so, through osmosis. It's, it's secondhand absorption. I mean, Isn't that how music works though? Yeah. I mean, anyone making rock and roll is absorbing Sister Rosetta Tharp, but right. through lots of layers. Right. If you listen to Aretha, you're also listening to Mahalia Jackson. If you watch Michael Jackson dance, you're watching Jackie Wilson and James Brown. You can usually draw a line, a straight line or a crooked line through influences and hear how someone has stopped on a sound, but based it on people that came before them. So the whole could do super, super chunk thing, I can totally understand. And you're, I, I read your bio, you're a professional or a former professional rock or music writer, not just rock, but you're like a music writer. So yeah, I feel like People who write about music for a living listen to as much or more than musicians do. Like I mean, obviously, I, we listen because we're fans first, but yeah, I, I write about it. You guys got to be fans to do it too. And I came into all that stuff as a fan. I mean, I've always been kind of a music geek, and uh, I grew up listening to not just the stuff that was contemporary to when I was growing up, but I grew up listening to the Beatles and the Temptations and, and, and the Supremes and, and, you know, stuff that was on the radio, stuff that was laying around the house, stuff my teachers liked, and then kind of expanded my palette from there. I'm one of those people that even if I don't particularly like a genre or like a, a band, I appreciate where it comes from. I had a roommate for a while who was a cellist that introduced me to a bunch of classical music. And I'm not going to sit home and put on the Four Seasons by Vivaldi when I'm sitting in my house, like chilling out, but I can respect it. I work with a lot of metal bands in my day job and I'm not a metal guy, but I can go to a metal show and I'm digging the music. I understand the difficulty of making that music and the passion of the music. So I try to keep my ear as open as possible forget the professional part of it i think just as a music fan it's good to sort of draw in all of these different places all these different influences yes i've gotten better at that i used to be when i was a kid i used to only listen to like when i got into the rock that's all i listened to but i'm getting better at listening to other stuff i don't so i've been to a metal show but it was a long time ago and i think it's a little too loud and fast for me now i was like sure oh, However, sure. like metal dudes usually could really play. 
Yeah, I mean, like, to play that stuff... Like, I, you got to be pretty good to be able to play that fast. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's where I've kind of had experiences similar to you. Obviously, I'm not on stage, but it is a weird feeling to walk into a show and be like, everybody was white. (laughs) Where are the people of color? And even outside of shows, even in corporate settings, to kind of walk into that situation, it's this weird kind of all eyes on me, but I'm not sure how I should feel about this kind of thing. I don't know how that affects you, but it's, it's something that I feel like you don't not notice. I feel like I'm so used to it now. The pause is me trying to find the right way to express it. Sure. It will never not feel strange. Even in a community of musicians as accepting as mine, it always feels strange. If I were to find a silver lining when I was young, any band I liked always knew who I was when I went to see him a second or third time. When you're the only dude in the room that's black and you're 6'3", people remember what you look like. That can be a plus for sure. But it's... It feels a little unsafe sometimes. Sure. Like, you have to push that down, but that's been most of my life, so... I guess I'm used to it. And I, like you, have tried to explain this to white people before, but like, like explaining it, don't do it. I just want to drop them off like in Namibia for, for like a week or something and then go get them. Yeah. How'd that yeah. go for you? Yeah. Everyone looked at me. Yeah. What's it? Didn't yes, feel great. Did. Did, did it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, this reminds me of when I went to China for my corporate job. Exact same thing, just different, right? Just sure. Like on a rock show, only everybody's time. So not only am I darker than everybody, I tower over your average uh, resident of Guangzhou. And people will just openly stare at you in public. That's got to feel real strange. It was weird. It was even weirder when people stopped, started coming up and asking to take pictures with me. I mean, they don't speak English, but there are certain gestures that are international, right? The, the, yeah, so... <laughs> I feel like maybe they thought I was in the NBA. Yeah, it's like, did they think you were like Shaq? But I mean, I'm only 6'3". I'd be a point guard. I mean, I'd be short for a point guard these days. But it felt like being kind of in a zoo. Like, hey, there's the strange foreign guy. Everybody's right. there at the strange foreign guy. But like, in defense of the people, they were very, I didn't meet anyone that was mean to me. Everyone was cool. Food was great. Go to China if, you know, your company sends you. But yeah, it was Maybe I adapted to it so well because I'm so used to being the only black guy in a room. It's like, right. eh, whatever. Right. Yeah, I can see that. No, um, it'll never it'll never not be weird. Like it's you're all there for the same reason. Even like let's just set aside the rock shows, like the acoustic the person with an acoustic guitar songwriter nights, which I love to go to. Every now and then there's a black other black person or two who will come and play those. And I'm always happy when they do. But very often, even if I'm not playing, I'll just go to a 10, right, to support the community. But very often, only black guy in the room. Um, half the room are musicians. So, you know, when I'm around musicians, I feel like they're my people. 
there's a certain amount of the same language we all can speak and share. And I actually, I mean, even just seeing someone play music for half hour makes me feel better about life. But again, when you're the only person in the room that looks like you, it's just a little, it's just always something there. And I would be lying if I said it did not contribute to my general anxiety. And like, I, I really do hope my community listens to this because I don't want, I don't want anyone to think it's their fault. And I would like them to know that I love them, but I mean, it feels the way it feels. Right. And sometimes making people aware of the fact that a feeling exists can be super, super helpful. If taken in the right context, if taken with the right spirit. Well, we'll see if people listen to it and what they're like at the shows after this episode. (laughs) I'm sure you'll be fine, Mike. No, Um, no, our community is great and very accepting, but again, it, it feels the way it feels. Right. And I, I appreciate that you talk so much about community because I feel like that's another thing that's important to me and that I try to put forward in this podcast, like how important it is to have like people. And obviously you have a, a great deal of fellow musicians who are part of your circle. Like how that's got to be helpful, not just in terms of the networking you have to do to be a professional musician, but also just in terms of dealing with the other stuff that you deal with. Having people who kind of know you from a creative standpoint and also know you from a personal standpoint, they can kind of walk both those lines. It's kind of funny. I have not funny, haha, but funny, odd, or interesting. Again, when you write lyrics, you want to be precise. <laughs> you should want to be precise. I have different communities of people depending on context, right? I mentioned earlier I'm religious. So with my faith, we're a brotherhood, sisterhood, if you know. And it's not really a gender neutral English way to say that, is there? But family. Uh, community. Yeah, we're a family and we're a community. I've got my actual blood-related family. I have decades and decades of friends I've made, some of whom live not in this country, but I have a handful of very close friends who I love very much. And then I have the music community. So depending on context, I have different people in my world and they all help in their own in their own ways. Like I wouldn't go to someone from my faith community if I was having a particularly difficult time expressing something in a song, right? Sure. Uh, Just like if I had a particularly interesting thought on a Bible verse, I wouldn't go to someone in my music community with that probably. It doesn't mean that I love them. It doesn't mean I don't love all the people. It's just that different people in your life, you have different kind of relationships with them. Right. But what I love about our music community in Dayton, one, again, I've said this already, but they were accepting of me from the get-go. But I never felt like I shouldn't go to shows because I look different. I haven't felt like I shouldn't do rock and roll because I'm Black. And that would make me very angry if someone ever tried to make me feel that way. And just watching the way the people in our community interact with each other. Many of the musicians are in multiple bands. Our town's not that big. People will jump in and help when called on. I mean, the only reason I'm able to make records here is because... I invite or beg <laughs> musicians in my community to come play with me in the studio. And the overwhelming majority of the time, after I offer to pay them, they say no. Now, I believe that musicians should be paid for studio work, which is why I offer. But if someone says no, I might not ask again because I ain't rich. So your time and your talent and your effort for free 
means a great deal to me. So also, I hope that the people that have played it on my records hear this and realize that I appreciate all of you, um, whether I have actually paid you money or not. I at least asked all of you. You did if ask. I could, if I could pay you money. Always. You have to. Like, to me, you have to. As, as enjoyable as music is, it's work. And people that don't do music don't understand that. Yeah, it doesn't. It's not like records come on a music tree they and fall off of the branch. I mean, kids think they do. Like, hey, I got all this music on my phone for free, which breaks my heart. <laughs> like, ways that I can't even explain. But it's work. If you didn't write the song, there's a certain amount of labor required to learn, to gather the skills enough to execute. There's a certain amount of emotional effort and energy it takes. Again, it's enjoyable. But it's work. still work. Still work. But if I lived in a city like Nashville where the, or New York where the musicians are unionized, I would not have been able to make any records. I wouldn't be able to afford it. Sure. And so I think my records actually speak very well of our community because if you go look at my liner notes, my first record, I've got like 12 guys on there. Well, not just guys. I have 12 men and women in the liner notes and just because I ask different people who I have enjoyed seeing play over the years and people are generally kind enough to say yes, but not just for me. You pick up most albums that are made by independent musicians in our town, regardless of genre, there are people outside of the band or outside of the artist or outside of the project on that record. We're a very collaborative community. I don't feel like there's a lot of jealousy or bickering. I mean, if there is, it's just not happening when I'm around. And I would like everyone to succeed. Like we have a pretty good metal scene in our community, which is not my thing, but we have metal bands here that are actually touring the world and doing the thing. Good for them. I want them to be successful. Yeah. We have a great hip hop community here and I've only been to a couple of those shows and I would, I would like to get to more, but I want those guys to be successful. I don't really like country music. I'm trying. There are um, levels. The reason I'm trying is because my uncle who actually lives in your town, my uncle lives in Brooklyn. He's been telling me for years that country music's our music too, boy. Um, for years. It is. Um, and I mean, he told me that when I was young, but you know, when you're young, you don't listen to anything older people right. say. But as I've gotten older, I've learned that he is right. So I've been trying to expose myself to more of it. We have very talented country musicians in our town, and I would like them to be successful, even if it's not what I would opt to play the first time I pick up a CD or whatever. Like, I want everybody, if, hey, if you want to make music, I want you to sell all the CDs that you have. I want you to sell all your t-shirts and that way you can afford to make more art. <laughs> like that's what I want for everybody. And I would hope that, that that's reciprocated. Maybe part of that's because we're in the Midwest and kind of like we have a stereotype for being relatively friendly folk out here. And uh, you know, I was thinking about that. And I think what separates a town like Dayton from New York or in LA or in Nashville, and really those are the only three cities in the US that I would probably apply this to, is that everybody's trying so hard to get discovered in those three cities that there can be some stepping on of toes, like intentional stepping on of toes. And so things can get a little bit cutthroat. Whereas I think any other city, any other town, it's the, again, the community aspect. If whoever gets there first sends down a rope and lifts everybody else up, like everybody's yeah. lifting each other up. Yeah. I mean, I, that's, that's how it should be. And you know, also most folks around here, there's not a lot of people that are trying to do music as a living. I think if you ask all of the musicians, would you like to, they'll all say yes. But 
do you have a plan for that? Nah, yeah. which is fine. <laughs> and it was mentioned to me yesterday at the at, at Forge Fest. One of the one of the musicians was saying, you know, I'm glad I'm not trying to do it as a living. I don't have an A and R guy telling me what I can and can't write. And I I said, well, that's a very valid point. Now I would love to write it to get a paycheck in exchange for writing songs, but I also don't want someone telling me what kind of art I need to make. Right. Yeah. And not being tied to that industry structure does afford us by us, I mean everybody in the community, a certain amount of artistic freedom to go do the stuff you want to do and you don't have to worry about someone saying to you, we can't sell this. Right. Um, that said, I would love to sell my music, but I realize I don't write popular music and I'm okay with that. Like I'm going to make the art that I want to make and it is like it's my challenge as a business person to find the audience for that. And I believe that that's something that all of us, no matter what kind of music you make, even if you don't see yourself doing music for a living today, I think if you make good music, there is the possibility for you to do it for a living if you find the people who will buy it. There's way too many people in this world for there not to be some small subset of them that will support you. And you don't need 17 million fans. You need just enough that are willing to spend money on you. I mean, unless you want to be like Justin Bieber, then you need 17 million fans. You need you just want to... people who are loyal. Yes. Yes. And you used the word networking earlier. Among musicians, yes, but with fans, that's more like a relationship. Like, you want to show what how you are as a person to the audience. In addition to your art, if you're not making decent music, then that's a non-starter. But apart from the art, you want to show, you want to have a personal as possible relationship with the people that listen to you without being creepy. Like, I try not to be creepy. But, but when you're an independent musician, every single person that buys something from you matters. Like, every single listen, every single sale like those people are not just numbers; they're actual human beings that I would like to connect with on a personal level mm-hmm. without being creepy. And then maybe they'll come back. Hey, I wrote something new, and you know I don't have it on a CD. I put this one on streaming, so you know that's gonna cost me. But you know I want to share this art with you. And then eventually, when I do have a product, I hope that I hope that you reward, or I hope that I've garnered enough trust with you that you will buy the future product. Right? That's it's community building. It's community building. At the very basic intro level of it, it is community-based structure. You're forming a relationship with somebody that's mutually beneficial. Yes. And if as a listener, if I'm not for you, cool. I, right. don't, want to, I don't want to be your enemy, but, you know, go move on and find right. something else you like. Right. And I'm not going to be offended. Yeah, I, that's that kind of stuff that keeps, that keeps me, I mean, I wouldn't make the music anyway, but that's the kind of stuff that keeps me motivated to continue trying to sell the music. That's awesome. Um, I mean, I write so much stuff that no one's ever going to hear. And sometimes you got to write something for you that no one needs to hear. And that's okay. Because sometimes you got to write the bad ones to go find the good ones. You know, every song that you write, it's not going to be Interstate Love Song. Well, I haven't written that one yet, but I, <laughs> I'm looking forward to writing my Interstate Love Song. I'm sure that Scott Weiland, May His Soul Rest, wrote like 20 crappy songs before he was like, oh, this is a jam. You know, yeah. or that song maybe went through 20 different iterations before it you know, you settled on, okay, this is the one that's going to be a hit. Also, I get it. By the way, to bring it back to work, that's work. Putting a, doing a song and then putting it through that many paces. Uh, do you remember when a couple years ago when somebody uh, leaked Radiohead's catalog and tried to hold a hostage and Radiohead was like, yeah, whatever. And they just put, all right. So 
which I thought was the coolest thing ever. And there was just like so much music. So I didn't have time to listen to all of it. Uh-huh. But I did listen to like an hour and a half of it. And a lot of that stuff was very early versions of songs that ended up on records. And it was very educational for me to see, oh, they are always editing and tinkering too. Like some of those songs were completely different from where they started to how they ended up on the record. Tempo changes, time signature changes, completely different instrumentation, completely different lyrics. Like, okay. It's not just, right. Yeah, I mean, but you can tell. And I mean, I'm in awe of their talent. But in addition to how talented they are, they put the work in. Okay, right. Right. It's not instantaneous. You have to arrange the colors into something that you're satisfied with. And that could take days, weeks, months, years, in some cases, to to, to figure out. So it is a labor of love. The word labor is as important as the word love in yeah. this situation. <laughs> you know? She got me motivated to shoot Chris and Sammy a text and be like, let's do part two of this uh, racism chat. Honestly, scrolling through on the website, that topic, like it just jumped out at me. And, I'm right. like, and I wasn't even halfway through of it. So my wife's a little white blonde girl. Okay. Who is raised, she's from Cincinnati, but raised in the outskirts. She's, she's a country girl and just hasn't been exposed. Like she, there's just stuff that she just doesn't get. Sure. I mean... And I've been trying, but she's, she's getting there. A few years ago, we had a driving while black experience while she was in the car with me. And I'd been, I had told her before about it, but like, yeah, 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 whatever. But she like experienced it firsthand. I mean, I did not break any laws, like, but I got pulled over by the racist cop. He, he screams at us, screams at both of us. And I told her. You need to record this entire interaction. She was so flustered and nervous that she, she couldn't. And I had to remain calm because you know what happens when you don't. But right. when it was over, I was, I mean, you know, a little bit was so frustrated and angry from, you got to keep it in because you don't want to get shot. And so, I mean, I was, it was bad. I took it out on her verbally in the car on the way home. Like, you know, why did you not videotape that? Like, do you not understand that when he shoots me, It'll be because I had weed or cocaine or went for his gun or, and if you don't videotape that, that is my word against his. And I right. always lose that. Right. So you as the white girl in the car, when something bad goes down, needs to tape that so that you, you can get a settlement. Like I'm thinking of her, but she was, none of this was in her head, but you know, he just messed with us enough time to ruin my day. Oh uh, God. Searched me without my consent and then sat me in his car for a bit. And I, you know, I have no criminal history. So I don't know. I mean, he was surely disappointed when we got back to his car and they run all the information. They find out that you just messed up my day because you're a jerk. Right. Um, and then he started playing that game where they try to get you to agree that what they did to you is for your own good. And I uh, did not say anything uh, the entire time I was in his car. Cause I'm like, this is all on the, uh, when you're in a car, you're recorded by the system, right? So right. Like, this is all on tape. I don't want anything me being on the, this is in Michigan on the way home on 75. So I don't want the state government of Michigan to have anything that indicates that I agree with what this idiot is saying about how, because they'll spin it like that I consented all this stuff. So I didn't right. say a single word while I was in his car. And he really tried to go with me to speak. But like just the afterwards, the I got the shakes and got angry. And right, the, anger, right. And, but, and I tried to explain to my wife, what you don't understand is 
when the policeman is coming to you, you can't be angry. You are angry, but you can't be because it's literally a matter of life and death. Do you know what, like, I tried to guess, do you know what that does to you? Like, it's like you're an animal backed into a corner. I hate to say that because we're not animals, but it's like, you know, you have to fight or flight and you can't do either of those things because, you know, fight and flight both get you shot. Yep. So there you don't have an option. You just got to sit there. I wrote a song about it because that's the only thing. I mean, what else could I do? Right. Right. I wrote the song like five or six times and finally got a version that uh, was fit for public consumption and then grabbed a, a local rapper from my community to, to do a verse on it because, uh, of course, he had had the same thing happen. Sure. After that, she kind of got it a little bit more. So she's she at least tries to get where I'm coming from. But like with her upbringing, there's just stuff that she doesn't like. She right. doesn't take my word. She doesn't get it. Right. But, so I'm I'm actually kind of bummed we had to have that experience. But for her, I'm glad that she had a firsthand experience of what the police do because she has never seen a policeman that way. Little white girls are taught that the police are your friends and you can right. them for anything and they're going to protect you. No, they're not. <laughs> they are not. <laughs> nope. And oh, also, so this is to make this even more weird. So my mom was a police dispatcher for 30 years. Oh wow. A good one. Like, oh, wow. National. Yeah, so for the time I was five, and she retired six, seven years ago. And I'm from, like, the town I grew up in is actually smaller than Dayton. It's in the outskirts. It's called Xenia. Uh-huh. And the town I grew up in, like, the police there are like my mom's boys because she's the one that literally tells them where to go and what to do. Right. And I always saw those guys being respectful to her. It's like, in my hometown, I don't got no pro- – I'm not afraid of the police. As a kid, I was like, man, if I get pulled over, my mama know before I do. Because if she's not working, <laughs> someone is going to call her. Right. Like if she's working, she'll know because they'll get the call. But if she's not working, one of the boys be like, I just pulled over your son. And like when my dad died, I go over to the house and there's like six police cars there. And she's already retired at this point. But uh, she'd been there so long and has so much respect in the forest that all these guys came over. And it was a little disconcerting for me to be around so many cops. Sure. I saw like they were treating my mother with extreme respect and deference, kind of like how they treat the old black matriarch in the movies. you know. Right. Um, and then I was okay. Like, they were, like, really – I thought, man, there is nowhere other city on this planet where I would even want to be in the same room with a policeman <laughs> other than because my mom worked for these guys for 30 right. years. And so she sees police a little differently than me because she's been on the other side. But, man, I just – it's it's scare an, me to death, dude. Yeah. It's an experience that people just don't understand, like, the relationship that people of color have with police versus the experience that, you know – that white people have with police like it's just it 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 ties all the way back into the empathy thing where it's just like look you know like understand where this all comes from and why you know why we feel the way that we do i was doing some volunteer work at a we have a outdoor free amphitheater in town run by a nonprofit, and 50 free concerts a year and there's always a uniform and plain clothes presence there and i'm on the volunteer staff i can sign up to work any of the concerts you know it's a good way to serve the community but uh a show a couple weeks ago, the plainclothes guys came up and talked to me, and I like I was nervous, and I thought to myself, I don't need to be nervous. These dudes are in khaki shorts and a polo, and the only thing that says the police is they got guns in their hips, and they were chill. I mean, they were chill, but I didn't make a joke about them potentially being dangerous. They were like, "Nah, we're not dangerous." I'm yeah. like, "Well, you know, you're the only ones you're armed." Yeah, yeah, you know, it's all about context. When I worked in retail, our security was usually off-duty police officers. You know, and it's different having a working relationship with these people. You know, given where I was, where we were working at the time, they were usually uh, officers of color, but still, 
Like it, it, it's, I don't know. It's, it's such a complicated thing. And I, I don't think that people, it, you know, it's people who don't have the experience are never really going to know what it's like to have the experience until they're with someone who has an experience. And then they're like, oh, I sort of get it now. Yeah. I mean, I just try to remind my wife, like, every time she's driving and breaks a traffic law. <laughs> well, some, sometimes she does it just out of neglect or sometimes, you know, right. speed up to get to that yellow or whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you did this there? I wouldn't have done that. Yeah. Different, different outcome. And it, and it don't matter because you might not be able to see where the post guy is, but whether he's there or not, assume they are. And just like, I was like, you just, think, you just don't want to give him an excuse. That's don't right. Pull you over. They don't need an excuse to pull you over, but don't give him one. That's right. That is like, absolutely correct. Maybe they got something better to do and they don't want to mess with you today. And that's another day that I don't get shot. <laughs> and I hate that I feel that way because they're obviously not all like the dudes of the amphitheater were cool dudes. We had like a nice 15 minute chat about music. They were chill. I thought to myself, if this dude pulled me over next week, would he remember that we had this conversation? Right. Right. I don't know. Right. You're absolutely right. You know, it's, it's, it's all about, you know, for, for in that, in those types of situations, it's really all about context. Like they can be cool one day and then three days later, they can shoot you. We thought we were done recording before Mike decided to talk about his experiences with the police, and I'm glad we were still recording because the stories that he tells give a good idea of the often complicated relationship that many people of color, especially black people, experience with law enforcement. I do my fair share of preaching empathy as part of this podcast, and I really urge listeners who do not know what it's like to have a difficult experience with those who are sworn to protect and serve to stop for a second and imagine what it might be like. Kudos to Mike for being so open and honest in our conversation. As I often do, I feel like I've made a new friend after talking to a podcast guest. You can find Mike at MikeBankheadMusic.com. He is also MikeBankheadMusic on Twitter and on Instagram. How's that for uniformity? I should probably take lessons from him. Thanks again for listening to this episode. We really hope that you stick around and listen to future episodes or past episodes if you feel so inclined. You can obviously listen to Detoxicity on the podcast platform of your choosing. And if you want to get in touch with me, please hit me up on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy, Twitter, TizMikeJoseph, or you can email me at DetoxPod at gmail.com. Always willing to hear constructive criticism, thoughts, ideas, realizations, and if you yourself would like to be a guest on the show or you know somebody who would make a good guest, I will take recommendations from now until the end of time, so please feel free to reach out to me. I want to thank a couple of people who've been very important to this show. Uh, Calvin Williams composed the music that you hear at the beginning and end of every episode. Jacob Block composed the logo or created the logo for the show. And I want to give a special shout out to Andrew Grossman and Jeff Giles for providing inspiration for me to come up with this idea and bring it to fruition. Once again, thank you all for listening. I really, really appreciate it and take care of yourselves. Peace.